For those of you that are non-Christians, you don't consider yourself spiritual or religious, I just wanted to say I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I really am. And for those of you that have like asked your friends to come, you know, and, and they finally like showed up today and you're praying and you're hoping that A, I'm not going to offend that's not going to happen. That is, I'm going to offend. Uh, B, that they won't be completely churned off and all that stuff. I just want to say those, those of you Christians that brought your non-Christian friends, what you're doing is essentially, I mean, what our church wants to be about, you know? We don't want to put up a big neon sign outside that says, non-Christians, come on. We, we want to make this as natural, organic, relational as possible. You know, like, bring in non-Christian friends. Don't be embarrassed. And if there are parts of our church that you're embarrassed about, you know, that you like would like us to address talk to me because i'm trying to i'm trying to uh be have new community be a place where it doesn't matter who your friends are that they could come and you wouldn't be embarrassed to invite them do do you know what i'm saying anybody connect with that right so if you're a christian you come new community you're like that that embarrasses me like talk to me about tell me about it so we can you know, I mean, there are things about the Christian faith naturally that are going to just offend. There are. How many of your lives have been wrecked because of Jesus? If your life is not wrecked because of Jesus, you haven't embraced this Jesus that the Bible talks about. I'm serious. You embrace him, he'll wreck your life. So there are things about him that's just going to offend. But we don't want to like go out of our way to offend you for just the joy of it. You know what I mean? It's not our purpose. There's certain things about the Christian message in and of itself will be offensive, and that's good. If you're a Christian and you haven't been offended by the message of Jesus and he hasn't wrecked your life, I will ask you, do you embrace the Christian faith that Jesus talked about? If your life is comfortable, you don't know this Jesus because he'll wreck your life. If you're not a Christian, you're sitting there going, then why do I want to be a Christian again? Tell me again, why do I want to be a Christian? Because... And that's essentially why we're here. We're talking about that. Look, if you're just joining us, uh, we've entered into uh, the sermon series. We're like fourth or fifth week. We're studying the book of Daniel. And in this sermon series, we're asking the question, essentially, how do we live Christian lives in an unchristian world? How do we live faithful lives in an, in an environment, in a culture, in a society that's hostile to our faith? How do we, as Christians, live lives that's fully engaged in culture, fully engaged in society, that we're not withdrawn, but fully engaged? But how do we do that in a way that we're distinct? How do we do that in a way that we don't assimilate to the larger culture's values? How do we do that in a way that we remain holy, as the Bible says, and truly distinct and unique. I mean, does anybody else struggle with that balance? Yeah. I struggle with it every day of my life. How do I do that? How do I, as Jesus says, as a Christian, how do I live in the world but not be of the world? How do I live distinct lives as a Christian in such a way that I am, again, fully engaged in the culture and society around me? How do I live my life as a Christian in such a way that I'm not just asking this question that many of us ask, I'm not just asking, well, there's sort of the line. There's sort of the line of what, what it means for me to be in the world and of the world and, and be involved in sin. How do, so I'm going to stand as far back from that line as possible and try and figure out how to kind of negotiate. How do we not just ask that question, but look, the question that we're really asking is, how do I find myself in a way that I'm so secure, founded, grounded in my faith and who I am as a Christian? That I'm not afraid to engage culture. I'm not afraid that I'm going to be assimilated. But then I radically, radically live out my faith in this world. 
Uh, I, I was uh, given a wonderful illustration by Stephen. Thank you very much. He gave me an analogy of a modern-day Daniel that I thought, you know, that's a really cool analogy. It comes from the movie Chariots of Fire. Anybody like that movie, Chariots of Fire? One of my favorites, right? Like, who can watch that movie without crying? You know what I'm saying? At some point, if you're fully engaged, you just weep because it's such a powerful movie. Eric Little, the Christian runner in that movie, I think is a modern Daniel. You say, how? Listen to this. He engages culture by being a runner. You know what? And he was the best runner. Christian or not, he was the best runner. You want to know what it means to be a Christian in the world? Be the best at whatever you do. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. This is why I offend, right? It's embarrassing how Christians are not at the top of their game and the best at what they do. How the heck do you expect the non-Christian world to give you an ear when you're mediocre at what you do? How do you expect your non-Christian co-workers to pay attention to you when you're a slacker, you're lazy, you show up to late work, you know, you're checking out Sports Illustrated on your computer while you should be working, you're checking your email. How do you expect the non-Christian world to go, what you got to say? You're not, you know what it means for you to engage? Be the best at what you do. Be the best. Your passion to be a comedian, be the best comedian that the world has ever seen. Are you a musician? Be the best musician that the world has ever... That's how you engage. That's how you engage. I'm tired of the Christian community being looked upon as being lame because we're terrible at what we do. And we want to hit them over outside the head with the Bible and go, believe in Jesus. And they're going, from you? I don't think so. You know what else he did? And this is where it gets powerful. Right before the Olympics, right? The main event that he's favored to win. Finding out that that event is being held on Sunday, Sabbath, he decides not to run it. Now, to many of us who grew up in a legalistic kind of church environment, we go, see, he's my kind of guy. You don't do stuff on Sunday. You just don't stuff on Sunday. You don't buy stuff. You don't eat stuff at a restaurant. You don't do stuff on Sunday. And you pay attention to them if you realize, that's not why he didn't run on Sunday. You know why he didn't run on Sunday? And this is what we've been talking about today for the whole sermon series. If you haven't gotten it, get it right now. The reason why he doesn't run on Sunday is his counterpart, Harold Abrams, gives a good picture of why Eric Little decided not to run. Harold Abrams, his main counterpart, his main sort of arch rival, in the movie, he has a powerful saying. You know what he says to his coach and to his mentor? He says, listen, the reason why he runs, the reason why he does what he does, he says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's you. That's me. Christian and not. We live our lives every day going, I have this to justify my existence. And so some of you are going, I'm smart. I get good grades. I have a good job. I'm successful. I have a beautiful girlfriend. I have a great boyfriend. I have, I, we say, I have this to justify my existence. If that's your anchor, you've already assimilated. You're just like the world. Forget about behavior. And do you know why Eric Little doesn't run on Sunday? It's not because he's breaking the Sabbath rule. He says in the line, it's my favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes of all time. He says what? This sister. This is why he runs. He says, God made me fast, and when I run, I sense his pleasure. 
Do you know why Daniel didn't eat the royal food? Eating the royal food, knew, he knew that eating the royal food would tempt him into the idolatrous lifestyle of the pagan world around him. That's why he didn't eat the royal food. You have two ways of living, Christian or not. You either say, God made me smart. God made me fast. God, God made me wealthy. God has given me all these gifts. And when I do these things, I sense his pleasure. Oh, it feels so good to know that I'm bringing glory to God because my foundation is secure. My identity is secure. You live your life that way or you can live your life Christian and not. Entire life going, I have this to justify my existence. I have this to say that I'm okay. If your life approaches, God has done this, and I live, I, I live for his glory, you don't have to worry about assimilating. You could be in the hard places. Your foundation is secure. Do you get that? But if your foundation is, this is how I get my identity, you will live your entire life going, boundaries, rules, I got to do that, I can't do that. What, which way do you want to live? Free! And saying, my foundation is set I'm going to go to the hard places for the glory of Jesus or rules, boundaries. I gotta, can't do that then. I don't know about you, but I've made my choice. God has created me. And whatever I do, I sense his pleasure. What's your anchor? What's your identity founded on? What's the motivation of your life? Christians, I'm talking to you. Do you have this kind of almost reckless, abandoned, radical faith to go into the world because your foundation is secure. You're not getting your identity significant. Your foundation is secure. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? As we continue the journey of Daniel, I got I to say a couple other things, you guys. Um, I, told, I told Michael this, but you know, I bit off way more than I could chew. I don't know what I was thinking, that I could preach one chapter at a time through the book of Daniel. You guys know me. I mean, I'm like, I'm like I'll spend like an hour on like 10 verses, right? So all that to say, my whole schedule is completely screwed up through the book of Daniel. And I don't need that. But I got responses from last Sunday going, you lost me at the end there. I have no idea what you're talking about. Kingdom of God, what's that? And I just whoop, went right through it. And one of the most significant things that the scripture talks about the kingdom of God. So what I want to do today is I want to spend a moment just talking about the end of Daniel chapter 2 and the, and, the, and, and, and the dream and the meaning of it. For those of you that think, I know what the kingdom of God is for crying out loud. Why did I come for this? I guarantee you, you'll hear something you've never heard before. Okay, so hang in there. Don't be like such a snob, okay? And for those of us, for those of us who are like, I don't know what the kingdom of God is, Peter. I've heard it here and there. Today will be like a brief course, and then you can check out our podcast. But listen, here's where I'm going after this brief review. Here's where I'm going this week, and rest of this week, and the next week. Rest of this week, uh, how many of you guys, Daniel chapter, how many of you guys have had this conversation? It's one of the conversations I hate the most. When I'm talking to a non-Christian and they say, let me ask you something. So you're saying, uh, just because I'm a Buddhist and I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to go to hell? They're going, I hate that question. Can't we start somewhere else? Or somebody goes, you're telling me that Jesus is like the way, the truth, and the life? Come on, dude, are you serious? All kinds of good people believe all kinds of good things all over this city. What makes you think? Is this relevant to anybody? Yeah. 
Don't you want to know how to deal with that? Yeah. <laughs> next Sunday, get this, next Sunday. Do you have friends that are saying, you know why I can't believe in a loving, powerful God because evil in the world, injustice in the world, suffering in the world. That's why I can't believe in this God. Anybody? Next Sunday is Sunday you want to bring those friends because we're going to try and adjust that through the book of Daniel. All right? So that's kind of where we're going. So today, brief recap. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, okay? <laughs> I said brief recap. I don't think so. Okay, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. We said last week, you guys, that Daniel chapter 2 and the dream and the interpretation. Uh, look up here for a second, okay? Look up here. Daniel chapter 2, you guys, answers a question of why should I get involved in the world? Why should I get involved in cultural engagement? Why should I get involved in societal transformation? Why should I be involved in the world? Because here's the question, okay? Here's the question that we need to wrestle with. Your eschatology, your whataology, your eschatology, theology students, eschatology is your, is, 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 is knowledge about the future, the end times. Like what you think about the end times and how end, everything's gonna unfold at the end. Your eschatology will, will impact your present day life. What do I mean? Do you know what the Christian, by the way, that book, Unchristian that I talked about last week, you need to pick that up. Do you know what the non-Christian that's out there in our world thinks Christianity is about? Two words. Get saved! Get saved! Underlying that, Jesus Christ died for you. You can be forgiven of your sins so you can spend eternity with God in heaven. Isn't that great news to which the world goes, no, actually, it's not. Get saved. And this passage in Daniel chapter 2 directly addresses the whole thing of what happens in the Look, if your view of the end times, I know this is going to rock some of you guys. If your view of the end times, if your view at the end of all things is that Jesus Christ is going to come, he's going to whisk you into heaven, and you're going to spend eternity in this spirit state, sort of harps playing and uh, choirs and angels flying and something like, you're going to have very little to no motivation to live your life here and now making a difference. It's just a fact. I don't care what you say, your perspective is going to be, I'm going to keep my nose clean, I'm going to be a good person, and I'm going to wait until Jesus comes, because when rapture happens, I'm going to be up in heaven. What about the rest of the world? Oh, they're going to hell, but it doesn't matter, because I'm going to go to heaven. Well, the kingdom of God completely, completely reverses, or just, just demolishes, actually, that notion of what God intended for the world. And the key of this is found in chapter 2, verse 44. Listen to chapter 2, verse 44. Let me read that for you guys. It says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. Now, here's the powerful truth, you guys. What, and I, and I italicize the important parts, can you tell? What Daniel, through the interpretation, is saying this, the end of all... And the end will be a time in which God is going to establish his kingdom. And his kingdom is not some nation. It's not some, you know, it's not an empire. It's not, it's not even the church. Some people think it's the church. Church is just a reflection of people living out the kingdom. But the kingdom of God, God says, is what God is going to establish here on earth. See, here's the storyline of the Bible. You ready? The storyline of the Bible says this, that God, when he created his prized creation, men and women, he gave them a choice. You either follow my way, my route, in which you'll experience shalom and life, or you choose your own way, to be your own God, to be your own master. 
And the Bible tells us that man decided to choose his own way, to be his own God. So here's what happens. Genesis 1 and 2, paradise. Genesis 3, paradise. Genesis 3 and after, Jerry Springer show. That's as succinctly as I can put it. After Genesis 3, the Jerry Springer show. There's alienation, there's disintegration. Alienation between us and God. Instead of living life for God, for the glory of God, we say, I have 10 seconds to justify existence. So I'm going to find these dazzling things and make them idols to find my identity, find my significance. We're cut off from God. We're also cut off from each other. The Jerry Springer show. Greed, racism, injustice, incest. list goes on and on. Relationally, we suck. You know why? Because of sin. Jerry Springer show. Jerry Springer show. Genesis, there's physical alienation. What do I mean? Famine, earthquakes, wars. The physical world disintegrating, eventually even us, as we physically die. The Jerry Springer Show, psychological alienation. We're all too familiar with guilt, condemnation, no peace, no joy. Constantly striving for something, only to walk away even more empty. The Jerry Springer Show. What does God do? God says, I'm going to cancel the Jerry Springer Show. Isn't that? And he says, I'm going to renew. Listen, listen, this is the key. He says, I'm going to renew and fix the whole thing. Wait a minute, God. You mean you're going to whisk us to heaven and the world, whatever happens to it, happens to it. But you got, no, God says, no, 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 no. There's no whisking away to heaven. I'm going to come and fix this entire mess that you made. I'm going to fix and redeem the whole thing. I'm going to bring healing. I'm going to bring restoration. I'm going to bring renewal. The created earth is not going to be abandoned. It's going to be restored and renewed so that you relate to me in the right way, so that you relate to each other in the right way, so they relate to the creation in the right way. And Jesus had the audacity to say, that's what he came to do. Jesus never once, never once at the gospel said, I came so that you could be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven and spend eternity with God. Never. Somebody show me in the Bible where he said that. You know what Jesus said? Kingdom is here. The kingdom is near. Kingdom of God is here. The kingdom is near. The first 27 words of the book of Mark starts out with Jesus saying, the kingdom is here. The time has come. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. What is the kingdom of God that Daniel prophesies in 244? That Jesus says, I came to inaugurate. Here's the definition. You ready? The kingdom of God, listen to this, is the presence of God's supernatural ruling power already entered into human history to bring about renewal of the whole world by the healing of all the results of sin, spiritual, psychological, social, physical. Is this good news to anybody? If you believe this, it cannot help but impact your present day now. If your end future uh, perspective is God's going to whisk me to heaven because I'm forgiven since spent eternity with God in heaven, you're not going to care about this world. And you're going to be obsessed with saving souls, which is okay. But God says, my plans are bigger. I want to save the whole darn thing. The whole darn thing. That's wonderful news. And that's what Jesus essentially came to do. His ministry in the Gospels was a reflection of the kingdom that is already here, not yet in fullness, but already here, when Jesus healed physically sick, when Jesus cast out demons, when Jesus set the oppressed free, when Jesus gave life, when Jesus fed the hungry. Jesus was giving a glimpse of, this is the kingdom that is to come. That's why I love J.R. Tolkien's quote. 
He got it. He nailed it when he said, the hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. He was saying, I'm that king that came to establish this kingdom. Do you know why you need to be engaged in culture? Do you know why you need to work for better music, better arts, better media, better legal, better all those things? Because when you do that, you're giving a glimpse of the kingdom that is to come. When you make beautiful art, you're doing kingdom work. When you make beautiful music, you're doing kingdom work. When you help somebody as a counselor, Nicole, as a therapist, you're doing kingdom work, psychological healing, community development, kingdom work. Architects, building beautiful structure, that's kingdom work. Everything you do matters. Everything you do matters. Everything you do matters for the kingdom. For the kingdom. Why should you care about this world? Because God says, I care about this world and I'm not going to abandon it. I'm going to renew it and make it reflective of the glory of God. Let me stop here and just put this up there. One quick quote. So how do we define the gospel in our church? Listen, listen, listen. This is so important. Gospel in our church is not Jesus died for you, so go to heaven and be forgiven of your sins. The gospel is a lot more meaty than that. The gospel is a lot more robust than that. The gospel is something you can sink your teeth under. You know what I mean? The gospel is something you're going, oh, yeah, that's good stuff. This is the gospel right here. Say that with me. Ready? The gospel. All together. It's the good news that through Christ, the power of God's kingdom has entered history to renew the whole world. And when we believe and rely on Jesus' work and record for our relationship to God, that kingdom power comes upon us and begins to work through us. That's the gospel. So when people ask you, what's the gospel of Jesus Christ? You're not going, Jesus Christ died for us, I can go to heaven. You're going, let me take a step back. Because I learned this on Sunday. The gospel is, ah, I should have taken notes. You got to take notes, okay? The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has ushered in the supernatural rule and reign of God into history, into history, redoing, renewing and redeeming the whole thing, the whole thing, the whole thing. And when we believe and rely on his work, that kingdom power comes upon us. That kingdom power comes upon us, renewing us and transforming us. That's the gospel. And you know what? I don't know about you guys, but with that, with that constant definition of the gospel, I've been able to go and talk to a lot of non-Christians, and I've actually had non-Christians go, I don't actually believe and agree with what that says, but I'll tell you what, that's something that I could consider. That actually is something that makes sense. The gospel is the good news. Okay. This is so important. For those of you snobs, I heard the kingdom, Peter, move on to the next thing. Listen to this. You've never heard this before. Not in our church. The rock. The rock. The kingdom of God that hits the statue, bringing down all the other kingdoms, and the rock growing into a mountain, which is the kingdom of God. There's something powerful, powerful about this illustration that you need to know. You need to know. Kingdom of God, you need to know. You need to know if you're going to move out into the world. That is this. It's not the mountain that hits the statue and breaks it to pieces. It's not the mountain, the completed mountain that establishes God's kingdom over the kingdoms of the world. It's a rock that smashes it and grows into a mountain. One powerful aspect of the kingdom of God that you need to know if you're going to live out in the world with this powerful truth behind you is this. The kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet. Everybody say that with me. Ready? Already here, but not yet. One more time. Ready? Already here, but not yet. 
The kingdom of God, the Bible says, was ushered in by Jesus. This rule and reign to create the whole thing was ushered in by Jesus. But it's not in here in its fullness yet. It's not completed yet. We live, as the New Testament scholars say, in the overlap of the ages. We live in between the times. And so, how does that apply to us? Why is this so important? Because three things, really quick, three areas. Number one, social change. Why is that important for us to realize that the kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet? Because that already tells us that you and I are salt and light. We can make a huge difference in our world. You can make, we could do amazing things for God, bringing about renewal and transformation. We could abolish slavery. We could, we could put an end, we could put an end to, 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 to all kinds of things in our world that, that is bringing about discrimination to our world. Christians have been used by God powerfully to bring about amazing changes, but the not yet reminds us that the kingdom isn't here in its fullness. It reminds us, you guys, that there will be wars and rumors of wars. That there will be injustice. That there will still be evil. That there will be effects of that. And so here's the thing. We as Christians don't get discouraged and we don't despair at the lack of a completely transformed world. God says, We don't put our faith in political agendas to bring about a utopian society. God says, What about church? Church health. Already means that the, the church is, is a body that can live out the kingdom and actually bring about revival and transformation. The church can be an entity where a, a person can come to know Christ. A church is a place where, where God has broken down dividing walls and we can enjoy fellowship across race and class differences. Though already tells us that the church is a powerful entity used by God to spread Jesus, but not yet. There's no such thing as a perfect church. For those of you that flit around from church to church going, I want, there's no such thing as a perfect church. Listen, do you know why? You wouldn't take this way. Do you know why you jump from church to church, church shop, and go, because you don't embrace the not yet aspect of the kingdom when it comes to church. There's no such thing as perfect teaching. There's no, if any church says, we got the right teaching, we got the only teaching, we're the true church. Some of you grew up in churches like that. You can go, not yet. What the heck are you talking about? Not yet. This means that you're realistic about what you expect from a church. Our church, our church is messed up. It is. We got flaws. We got all kinds of issues. You're looking at somebody who has all kinds of issues. Don't have romantic notions about a church being the perfect church. There's no such thing. So you have a realistic view of the already great church, but not yet issues just like everybody else. Are you tracking? What about personal transformation? This is huge. The already of the kingdom reminds us that we are participants of the divine nature. The already of the kingdom reminds us, you guys, that we can be transformed. Addictions can be overcome. Enslaved and sinful habits can be overcome. We can have victory over sin and we can be transformed like Christ already. But then not yet. Pay attention right here. Everybody look up here. Not yet. You know what that reminds us? Not yet reminds us that we don't have pat answers for change. Not yet reminds us that we remember that change and transformation is complex. Not yet reminds us that we need to be people of grace. Not yet means that we as Christians don't go up to people and go, just read the Bible. Just pray. Just try harder. To which I give you permission, smack them upside the head and go, not yet! 
Najat means that we're patient with people. Najat means that when Christians fail, Najat means when Christians fall, God forbid they have sex outside of marriage. We as Christians go, <gasps> Najat means what? That we confront them with truth, but in love. Not yet. And you know what? This is so powerful, personal holiness. Listen, here's a definition of an already but not yet aspect of the kingdom. Put it up there, okay? As regards to holiness. The gospel says, although we are more wicked and more sinful than we ever dare believe, that's up. Not yet. Can somebody say not yet with me? Ready? Not yet. You know what? You're pretty bad. We're pretty wicked. We are. We're sinful. We're not all that. So you know what happens? When we sin, we're not devastated. <gasps> when we do something that we shouldn't, we don't go, oh my gosh, I'm demoralized. Oh my gosh. I... When we sin, we say, we don't make excuses. We go, not yet. I am more wicked and more sinful. I never dare believe. Do you know what the already means, though? Already means, but in Christ, we are more accepted and more loved than we ever dared hope at the same time. Is that good, Michael? The already and the not yet. Do you know why you need this? Because listen, if you don't embrace the not yet aspect of the kingdom, that we are more wicked and more sinful than we ever dare believe because we have some hyper sanctification, whatever, you know, like we're Christians, we can't sin, we need to be da da da. When you have that and you sin, you know what you'll do? You'll hide. You'll wear masks. You'll drop rules and boundaries. You won't be authentic. Why? You're scared to death. At what essentially is true. We're sinners in progress. When you don't embrace the not yet aspect of the kingdom, you will hide, wear masks, be hypocritical, and continue to live in darkness. Some of you are there today. People don't know where you really are because you're like, if they knew how sinful I was, if they knew how wicked I was, if they knew their thoughts, hello, we already know. And the already, you know why that's so powerful? That's what gives you assurance to go, I'm bad. I'm wicked. I'm sinful. I'm messed up. And I'm okay. Not to make excuses, but because I'm accepted. I'm already grounded. I'm already in. There's nothing that I can do today, tomorrow, next week that would change God's love for me. My assurance is secure. My security is set. So I'm going to be real and honest and genuine. If you ignore the not yet aspect of the kingdom in regards to personal transformation, you will hide, you will draw rules, you'll be legalistic, you'll pursue religion, you'll do all those kinds of things and never be true and real and honest. And sin will do, sin in your life will devastate you. Sin and weakness in your life will crush you because you're going to go, hi, Emma. Whereas if you ignore the already aspect, realizing who you already are in Christ, instead of pursuing the gospel that says, I'm already in, I'm already secure, you're going to say, religion. I obey, I got to. That's why God loves me. I got to serve, I have to. That's why God accepts me. I have to be a good person, I have to. That's the only way that I'll be in. Let me put up a quote. John Newton, he nailed it. Already not yet. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I hope to be, but still... I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. Welcome to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is this good news? This is the kind of stuff that will set you free. 
This is the kind of stuff that'll give you energy and motivation to say, I'm going to get out there. I'm going to get out there. The world goes, who do you think you are? You're wicked. You're sinful. You're not all that as a Christian to which you go, I know. Isn't that great? <laughs> and you go out there, you radically serve. And they're like, whoa, why are you doing what you're doing? Because I'm secure. Because I'm set. Because I have worth in God's eyes. Because he loves me. Because he saved me. Because he redeemed me. And he's going to redeem the whole thing. Already? Not yet. Already? Can I just ask you guys, where are you? Some of you guys living in the area of ignoring and forgetting the not yet aspect. And you're living under tremendous guilt and condemnation because you're looking at your life going, I have to do better. I have to be better. I, of course you do. God knows that. But you know what? Guilt and condemnation comes from failure to recognize the not yet. Trying, striving to be accepted by God, favored by God. I have to do this for God to love me, to earn his... God says, you're already in. Already in. That's what I wanted to talk to you guys about in Daniel chapter 2. Now let's look at just a little bit of Daniel chapter 3. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. I promise, I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of a teaser and then we're going to come back next week. Daniel chapter 3. And I just want to make you sing Amazing Grace. It makes me want to, I just wanted to stop right here. Michael, there's a black church, you know what I'm saying? David, can we come back up and let's just, let's just, no, let's not do that. No, 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 let's not do that. No, let's not, let's not do that. Let's not do that. I, I know, I, I know, I'm just going to teach you like that. Daniel chapter 3, ready? Here we go. We're going to look at one thing. King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1, made an image of gold 90 foot high and 9 feet wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, and treasurers, judges, and magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flutes, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 6, Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. You know what? Some of the stuff that they used to do back then, you know, it's pretty hard, like throw in the den of lions, and just like, Harsh. I'm sorry, let's go on. Verse 7, Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flutes, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the people's nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold the Nebuchadnezzar had set out. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! That's called kissing up. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not, and watch this, watch this, watch this, do not serve my God or worship the image of gold I have set up. Everybody look up here. How many of you guys were taught that the whole thing about them being thrown into furnace fire is because they refused to worship this idol? Raise your hands high. 
Okay, how many of y'all don't care? Okay. I'll be honest. You know what? That's not what happens here. They're not thrown in. Listen, they're not thrown in to the fire because they refuse to worship to this idol. In other words, they refuse to sort of, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you, the idol, the statue, that's you, and we're going to give our worship to you. The reason why they're thrown in the fire is found in verse 14, where it says, You do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up. They're being thrown into the fire because they neither wanted to bow down to the statue or, as he says, worship other gods. You tracking? So for those who grew up in Sunday school, you gotta, you gotta worship God and God only. You can't compromise. Da, 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 da. That's not what happens here. So what the heck happens here? Well, we'll talk about that in one second. Verse 15. Now when you hear the sound of the horn, full zither, harp and lyre, pipes and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown into the image into a burnished furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Everybody look up here. Let's go on a little journey about what happens here in Daniel 3. First realize the significance of King Nebuchadnezzar saying, make sure, and the Bible says this twice in chapter 3, all the people of all the nations, all the languages, all the cultural groups, make sure they come down and, and, and bow down to this statue that I have made up. We're not told what the statue is. We're not. We're not. Some people thought it's Babylonian gods. Well, it's clearly not Babylonian gods. He says, you don't worship the Babylonian gods or the statue. Some scholars think the statue then was Nebuchadnezzar himself. The Bible doesn't clarify. It could have been him. It could not have been him. From chapter 2, we think it might be him because he had a huge ego, right? 90-foot statue, everybody bow down to me. But the fact that he says, you don't bow down to that or you don't worship the other gods tells us that it was something else besides sort of exclusive worship of this deity, this idol. What's this decree all about? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is overseeing a multicultural, multi-ethnic, polytheistic empire where people worship gods of all stripes and all kinds. This decree was not, listen, you must worship this god. You must bow down to this idol instead of your gods. That's not what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. You know what he's doing? He's saying, you must worship these gods or this idol on top of, in addition to the god that you worship. And you go, Huh? What's Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's looking for political glue. He's reigning over this multicultural, polytheistic empire, and he says, how am I going to have peace when all of these people worship their own gods? How am I going to have peace and rule in this, ra- in this realm when all the people have their own gods? And, 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 if we have a group like the Jews who come from this nation called Israel, and they supposedly worship this one god, Yahweh, if we have people who say, we will not bind down to other gods, we will exclusively worship our god and our and you can't make us, Nebuchadnezzar goes, that's going to lead to what? Intolerance. That's going to lead to people being religious bigots. That's going to lead to that group oppressing that group, being judgmental of that group. That's going to lead to that group saying, you're less... And he's saying, that's going to bring chaos to my empire. That's why he says, you must worship these gods or worship this statue or worship whatever you want to worship. He's saying, you're free to worship your own God. You're free to say Yahweh's the only God. But you must not say that he is the only God. He is the only way. He is the only truth. Sound familiar? Thank God we don't live in that culture anymore, right? How many of you guys are tracking? I know for some of us you're going, you're just wrecking my brain right now because you, that is not what I was told in Bible school. Read your Bible for yourself. Read the Bible for yourself. It cannot be him. Worship the statue if you don't. He says, either you worship the statue, either you worship my God, or else. What is he doing? 
He's trying to foster religious pluralism. He's saying, look, if I'm going to have peace in my empire, you Jews, you could worship your God, but you can't worship him only. Because if you do, and you have exclusive worship, so on and so forth, it's going to lead to chaos. So what is he saying? He's essentially saying, everybody in my empire, the only thing that you can't do is say, my God is the only God. You could say, my God is the only God, and I will worship all these other gods, but you cannot. You guys tracking so far? You tracking? Watch this, watch this, watch this. Is that our culture today? Somebody say yes, that's our culture today. If you don't think it's our culture, just go out to the streets and go, Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. They'll go, get out of here, you freak. You say that Jesus Christ is the only one exclusive of your worship and your church and so on and so forth. People in our culture will say, that's intolerant. So what do we do? We live in a culture that's politically correct. So you know what? You can worship your Jesus, but you can't say that he's the only one. You can worship your Jesus. You can't say that he's the only way, truth, and life. As long as you're willing to say everybody else will accept you. If not, are you tracking so far? I know that this takes a little bit of thinking, a little bit of thinking. But please, are you tracking with me so far? Yeah? Okay, okay. This is the world that you want to live in. The conversation earlier, Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. And somebody goes, get out of here, you ignorant person. I realized ignorant is not a noun. That's a, <laughs> you ignorant. <laughs> Look, you know what this has done? I'll just be honest. Christian, you're scared. You're chicken. You're big chicken. We're big chickens. This is why we're quiet about our faith. Can we just be honest? We live and swim in this culture, and so how dare you come across this? Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. Because people will go, religious bigots, shut up. To which we go, okay. Or some of us, we've taken the other way, which is, you think your God, I'm going to come at you even harder. He is the way, the truth, and the life. What you going to do about it? <laughs> is it not true? That's how we come across people. That's how we come across the people. And so Christians, we're scared of the world out there, and they're kind of scared of you because they're going, oh my gosh, they have this exclusive view. Jesus Christ, only the truth. And you know what? They're intolerant. They're arrogant. They're angry. They're, they're, look at that. Picket signs. Look at, to which we're going, oh, somebody help me. How do I live? Two things. Number one, let me speak to those of you, non-Christians, or Christians who think this way, or you have friends who say, if you say Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, you're going to be intolerant. You're going to have this exclusive view, and you're going to be arrogant and proud. Let me talk to you for a second. You consider yourself a very tolerant person. You consider yourself a very tolerant person. You say, you know what? I am, I am open to all faith. All faith leads to God. There isn't just one way to God. All religions are just as valid. All religions are just as valid. And, and, and furthermore, I can't stand that Christian that says, Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. If you think you're really tolerant, let me just, let, let's just go ahead if you're really that tolerant. Here's what I mean. If you say to a Christian, don't enforce your views on me. Don't enforce your views on me. Don't enforce your ultimate view, view ultimate reality that Jesus Christ is the only way the truth of life on me. Don't do that to me. What are you doing? Here's what you're doing as a tolerant person. You're saying, my ultimate reality is better than your ultimate reality. You're saying, there are many paths to God. That's a belief system. So when you as a very tolerant person go, I will be tolerant. I can accept people of all faiths except those Christians. Are you really as tolerant as you... Make it sound? Did that just, or are you guys tracking? So for those of you that are sitting here, Christian or not, going, tolerant, we need tolerance. Realize that when you say to somebody, don't impose your views, don't convert people, impose your views on others, 
you're at the same time imposing your view on somebody else. Do you see what you're saying? Now, you may go, but I'm a lot gentle than that. It's not a matter of gentleness and harshness. You're either tolerant or intolerant. Does that make sense? <laughs> Let me give you an example of what that means. Nebuchadnezzar is a bad example. He says, you are free to worship any way you want to as long as you worship my way. <laughs> That's what he says. You worship any way you want to as long as you worship my way. And our culture says, we're very tolerant. We're about religious pluralism. You could all worship any gods you want, any gods you want. You could say any god is the right god. But you Christians that are very exclusive, we can't deal with you. That's not tolerance. That's intolerance. You know what the real problem is? The real problem is this. Because if I press somebody who says, all right, you got me there, all right, I'm not as tolerant, okay? Because I don't think that Christians saying Jesus is the only way to is just as valid. Like that, I don't like. I don't want to deal with that. When I press somebody and I, this happened, they say, you know what the real truth is, man? He's like, the real truth is I've never met a Christian who was, Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. I am radical about my faith. I am bold about my faith. I've never met a Christian who was like that, but also compassionate, loving, gentle. The only Christians that I met that is Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life, Peter, stand out with picket signs outside of a funeral. They stand out and argue. They're judgmental. They're harsh. To which I go, <sighs> and they go, that's why, that's why I'm in favor of people saying, you can't be exclusive because that's the only way that we'll have peace and tolerance. If that's you, let me use your encouragement. And I'm speaking to Christians as well. You please, please listen, pay attention. And this is why this encouragement. If you're a Christian or you meet a Christian, who says, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other gods. There's no other gods but him. If you're a Christian that says, Jesus Christ is the only truth. There are, all the other religions are not just as valid. God, the creator of the universe, the Bible God, is the only God. If you're a Christian who says it and believes that and has embraced that, and yet at the same time, you're arrogant, you're judgmental, you're, you're intolerant, you're angry, that shows that you haven't gotten the gospel. David, you can come on out. We're, we're finishing up here. If you are a Christian who says, I am a tolerant person. If you're a Christian who says, I am about the God of the Bible. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to choose love, and I won't worship any other gods. If that is you, if that is you, and you're intolerant, you're judgmental, you're harsh, and you're mean, it shows that you haven't gotten it. Why? Why? What is the truth? What is the truth that all Christians say you must know? What is the truth that all Christians say you must believe? Now, does it sound intolerant? Does it sound exclusive on the surface? But push in. What is the truth that all Christians say you must know? You must believe. This is the truth that you must know at the heart essence of Christianity. What is it at the heart essence of Christianity? You know what it is? It's Jesus Christ hanging, dying, bleeding, nails in his hands. For who? For his enemies. For people who hate him. For people who oppose him. For people who say, you're not God. We reject you. Let me ask you something. If you're a Christian or somebody who has embraced this Jesus, this Jesus who hangs on the cross and is bleeding and dying and being crucified, the most torturous death ever invented by man, if you're doing this if you've embraced this and this has become the anchor of your soul, could you possibly be intolerant? Could you possibly be judgmental? Could you possibly be harsh to those who disagree with you, oppose you? Impossible. 
If you face this Jesus, who says, you know, this Jesus who says, I'm hanging here dying for people who oppose me, people who hate me, people who are persecuting me. If you embrace this Jesus, you know what you realize? Jesus didn't just merely be tolerant with those who oppose him. You know what Jesus did? He went further. He broke through tolerance and he embraced radical, sacrificial love. Jesus blew away tolerance. That's all be tol- He blew away tolerance. He says, this is my measure. This is my measure of being a Christ follower. Blow away tolerance and embrace radical, sacrificial love for people who oppose you, people who hate you, people who are your enemies. The cross stands as a reminder. So if you are not a Christian, and you've met Christians who are harsh and judgmental and, 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 and intolerant of other faiths and saying, oh, I have the right faith. You press them and you go, have you embraced that Jesus who died for people who opposed him and who were his enemies? If that Jesus is reigning in your heart and soul, and that Jesus become the anchor of your soul, there will not be a judgmental, intolerant, I oppose bone in your body. How can you when that Savior is your King? And the Savior is your Lord. So Christians, I ask you, have you embraced the gospel? Do you know why they don't see Jesus out in the world? Because the people that are supposed to reflect Jesus don't love the world like Jesus did. Do you know why the Christian faith is impotent? Because a huge disconnect between our knowledge of God and our relationship to God and our ability and our willingness to break through tolerance. I hate that word. Break through tolerance and embrace radical sacrificial love. Radical sacrificial love. He doesn't just look at us and go, be tolerant, you know, you love it. He says, break through all that. And to those who oppose you, to those who accuse you, to those who say, you're a Christian and you stink, you say, the center and anchor of my life is a savior of the world who hung on a cross, bled and died for the entire world that hated him, persecuted him. What if Christians in our society, can you imagine? What if Christians in our society where people think we're intolerant, we're insensitive, we're judgmental, hypocritical? What if in our society we were known more for our sacrificial radical love than we were for our picket signs? What if in this world where Christians are perceived as intolerant, judgmental, lacking love, what if we broke through tolerance, embraced radical love, and we were known more for a towel around our waist and a basin of water that washes feet instead of arguments? I'll argue with you all day. What if? Being a fundamentalist doesn't make you a terrorist. Being a fundamentalist doesn't make you a hater. It depends on what you're fundamental about. If you're fundamental about self-righteous behavior, clothing, Christianity, yeah, it's going to be hateful and intolerant. But what if what you're fundamental about is a savior? What if what you're fundamental about is a savior who stood and died and bled and gave his life for his enemies? For people who opposed him, people who hated him. What if what you are fundamental about is this Jesus? It's about time that Christians gave a new name to fundamentalists in this country. Fundamentalists! Yeah, radical, sacrificial, breakthrough, tolerance, love. That's what they're fundamental about. I'm tired. 
How did we get here, church? Man, with this. If the unbelieving world has stopped listening, if the unbelieving world has stopped listening, you can't just turn up the volume. You got to say, what will make them listen? The Bible tells us what will make them listen. 95% of the time, do you know how? Do you know how? You live out absolute truth. It is in that sentence, through radical, sacrificial love. You want people to know absolute truth? Instead of going, hear the arguments, hear the... I can do that all day, but I choose not to. Because when the world says, show me absolute truth, 95% of the time they're saying, live it. Live it. Live it. Live it. If you're not a Christian here, and you've been the object of intolerance and hatred and judgment, I ask you for your forgiveness. And I say, I'm sorry that we've been such poor witnesses. And if you're a Christian, I've been dogmatic, and you're right, I got the right faith system, so on and so forth. My question to you is, what does a 95% of that apologetic look like in your life? Pray with me. We're going to come back to this theme again and again throughout this book study because it's the theme found in the entire Bible. If your approach to life is one of religion, because you're uncertain about the gospel, I obey, therefore God loves me. I am moral, I am good, I am a Christian, therefore, if that's your approach, I guarantee you, you will be intolerant, you will be judgmental because the entire basis of your faith system is what you do or don't do. And many of you are there right now, living that. But if your approach to life and your faith system is the Savior who hangs on the cross, dying, bleeding for those who hated Him and opposed Him, who chose to break through even tolerance and embrace radical sacrificial love, your life will shine forth and people will see your good Which Jesus do you know? Church, let's all stand together. The worship team will lead us in this very familiar song of response. And maybe for some of us, it'll actually come alive and speak to us in a way that it has never. Sing it as your prayer as your prayer
church, will you just sing just this part? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like, like me, like me, like me, like me. I was, was no, but now I was blind, but now I see. God, give us eyes to see. Your amazing grace and your radical breaking through tolerance, sacrificial love. And may that grab our hearts and our souls in such a powerful way that we would do the same. That we would be known for our radical love towards our enemies, towards who hate us, towards those who oppose us. Until your kingdom comes and deals with this whole entire mess. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you're in need of prayer, our prayer team will be up here. Bring your friends who are struggling with the Christian faith because they have those questions as we continue this journey. God loves you, church, more than you will ever know. Live your life in confident joy. Take care. Take care.